Book Six, Chapter Four of the Return of the Native by Thomas Hardy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Book Six, After Courses, Chapter Four. Cheerfulness again asserts itself at Bloom's End, and Klim finds his vocation. Anybody who had passed through Bloom's End about eleven o'clock on the morning fixed for the wedding would have found that, while Yobright's house was comparatively quiet, sounds denoting great activity came from the dwelling of his nearest neighbour, Timothy Fairway. It was chiefly a noise of feet, briskly crunching hither and thither over the sanded floor within. One man only was visible outside, and he seemed to be later at an appointment than he intended to be for he hastened up to the door, lifted the latch, and walked in without ceremony. The scene within was not quite the customary one. Standing about the room was a little knot of men who formed the chief part of the Egdon coterie, there being present Fairway himself, Granfer Cantle, Humphrey, Christian, and one or two turf-cutters. It was a warm day, and the men were as a matter of course in their shirt-sleeves, except Christian who had always a nervous fear of parting with a scrap of his clothing when in anybody's house but his own. Across the stout oak table in the middle of the room was thrown a mass of striped linen, which Granfer Cantle held down on one side and Humphrey on the other, while Fairway rubbed its surface with a yellow lump, his face being damp and creased with the effort of the labor. "'Wax and a bed-tick, souls?' said the newcomer. "'Yes, Sam.' said Granfer Cantle, as a man too busy to waste words. "'Shall I stretch this corner a shade tighter?' Ferret replied, and the waxing went on with unabated vigour. "'Tis going to be a good bed, by the look of it,' continued Sam, after an interval of silence. "'Who may it be for?' "'Tis a present for the new folks that's going to set up housekeeping,' said Christian, who stood helpless and overcome by the majesty of the proceedings. "'Ah, to be sure!' and a valuable one i believe beds be dear to folks that don't keep geese bain't they mr fairway said christian as to an omniscient being yes said the first dealer standing up giving his forehead a thorough mopping and handing the beeswax to humphrey who succeeded at the rubbing forthwith not that this couple be in want of one but twas well to show em a bit of friendliness at this great racket and vagary of their lives I set up both my own daughters in one when they was married, and there have been feathers enough for another in the house the last twelve months. Now, then, neighbors, I think we have laid on enough wax. Grant for Cantle, you turn the tick the right way outwards, and then I'll begin to shake in the feathers. When the bed was in proper trim, Fairway and Christian brought forward vast paper bags, stuffed to the full, but light as balloons and began to turn the contents of each into the receptacle just prepared. As bag after bag was emptied, airy tufts of down and feathers floated about the room in increasing quantity, till, through a mishap of Christians, who shook the contents of one bag outside the tick, the atmosphere of the room became dense with gigantic flakes, which descended upon the workers like a windless snowstorm. "'I never saw such a clumsy chap as you, Christian.' said grandfather cantle severely you might have been the son of a man that's never been outside bloom's end in his life for all the wit you have 
really all the soldiering and smartness in the world in the father seems to count for nothing in forming the nature of the son as far as that chief christian is concerned i might as well have stayed at home and seed nothing like all the rest of you here though as far as myself is concerned a dashing spirit is counted for summer to be sure don't ye let me down so father i feel no bigger than a ninepin after it i've made but a bruckle hit i'm afeard come come never pitch yourself in such a low key as that christian you should try more said fairway yes and you should try more echoed the Granfer with insistence as if he had been the first to make the suggestion in common conscience every man ought either to marry or go for a soldier tis a scandal to the nation to do neither one nor t'other i did both thank god neither to raise men nor to lay em low that shows a poor do-nothing spirit indeed i never had the nerve to stand fire faltered christian but as to marrying i own i've asked here and there without much fruit from it yes there's some house or other that might have had a man for a master such as he is that's now ruled by a woman alone still it might have been awkward if i had found her for d'ye see neighbours there'd have been nobody left at home to keep down father's spirits to the decent pitch that becomes a old man and you've your work cut out to do that my son said Granfer cantle smartly i wish that the dread of infirmities was not so strong in me i'd start the very first thing to-morrow to see the world over again but seventy-one though nothing at home is a high figure for a rover i seventy-one last candlemas day gad i'd sooner have it in guineas than in years and the old man sighed don't you be mournful grandfer said fairway empt some more feathers into the bed-tick and keep up your heart though rather lean in the stalks you be a grin-leaved old man still there's time enough left to ye yet to fill whole chronicles we gad all go to em timothy to the married pair said Granfer cantle in an encouraged voice and starting round briskly i'll go to em to-night and sing a wedding song eh tis like me to do so you know and they'd see it as such my down in cupid's garden was very well liked him for still i've got others as good and even better what do you say to my she called to her love from the lattice above oh come in from the foggy foggy dew to please em well at such a time really now i come to think of it i haven't turned my tongue in my head to the shape of a really good song since old midsummer night when we had the barley mow at a woman and tis a pity to neglect your strong point where there's few that have the compass for such things so tis so tis said fairway now gear the bed a shake-down we've put in seventy pounds of best feathers and i think that's as many as the tick will fairly hold a bit and a drap wouldn't be amiss now i reckon christian mull down the victuals from the corner cupboard of castor each man and i'll draw a drap or somewhat to wet it with they sat down to a lunch in the midst of their work feathers around above and below them the original owners of which occasionally came to the open door and cackled begrudgingly at sight of such a quantity of their old clothes upon my soul i shall be choked 
said Fairway, when, having extracted a feather from his mouth, for he found several others floating on the mug as it was handed round. I swallowed several, and one had a tolerable quill, said Sam placidly from the corner. Hello, what's that? Wheels I hear coming, Grandfather Cattle exclaimed, jumping up and hastening to the door. Why, tis they back again. I didn't expect em yet this half hour. To be sure, how quick marrying can be done when you've a mind for it. Oh, yes, it can soon be done, said Fairway, as if something should be added to make the statement complete. He arose and followed the Granfer, and the rest also went to the door. In a moment an open fly was driven past, in which sat Venn and Mrs. Venn, Yo Bright, and a grand relative of Venn's who had come from Budmouth for the occasion. The fly had been hired at the nearest town, regardless of distance and cost, there being nothing on Egdon Heath, in Venn's opinion, dignified enough for such an event when such a woman as Thomason was the bride, and the church was too remote for a walking bridal party. As the fly passed the group which had run out from the homestead, they shouted hurrah and waved their hands, feathers and down floating from their hair, their sleeves, and the folds of their garments at every motion, and Grandfather Cantle's seals dancing merrily in the sunlight as he twirled himself about. The driver of the fly turned a supercilious gaze upon them. He even treated the wedded pair themselves with something like condescension. For in what other state than heathen could people, rich or poor, exist who were doomed to abide in such a world's end as Egdon? Thomason showed no such superiority to the group at the door, fluttering her hand as quickly as a bird's wing towards them, and asking Diggory, with tears in her eyes, if they ought not to alight and speak to these kind neighbours. Venn, however, suggested that, as they were all coming to the house in the evening, this was hardly necessary. After this excitement the saluting party returned to their occupation, and the stuffing and sewing were soon afterwards finished, when Fairway harnessed a horse, wrapped up the cumbrous present, and drove off with it in the cart to Venn's house at Stickleford. Yobright, having filled the office at the wedding service which naturally fell to his hands, and afterwards returned to the house with the husband and wife, was indisposed to take part in the feasting and dancing that wound up the evening. Thomason was disappointed. "'I wish I could be there without dashing your spirits,' he said. "'But I might be too much like the skull at the banquet.' "'No, no.' "'Well, dear, apart from that, if you would excuse me, I should be glad. I know it seems unkind, but, dear Thomason, I fear I should not be happy in the company. There, that's the truth of it. I shall always be coming to see you at your new home, you know, so that my absence now will not matter. Then I give in. Do whatever will be most comfortable to yourself. Clem retired to his lodging at the housetop, much relieved, and occupied himself during the afternoon in noting down the heads of a sermon, with which he intended to initiate all that really seemed practicable of the scheme that had originally brought him hither and that he had so long kept in view under various modifications and through evil and good report he had tested and weighed his convictions again and again and saw no reason to alter them though he had considerably lessened his plan his eyesight by long humouring in his native air had grown stronger but not sufficiently strong to warrant his attempting his extensive educational project yet he did not repine there was still more than enough of an unambitious sort to tax all his energies and occupy all his hours. 
Evening drew on, and sounds of life and movement in the lower part of the domicile became more pronounced. The gate and the palings clicked incessantly. The party was to be an early one, and all the guests were assembled long before it was dark. Yobright went down the back staircase and into the heath by another path than that in front, intending to walk in the open air till the party was over, when he would return to wish Thomason and her husband good-bye as they departed. His steps were insensibly bent towards Mistover by the path that he had followed on that terrible morning when he learnt the strange news from Susan's boy. He did not turn aside to the cottage, but pushed on to an eminence, whence he could see over the whole quarter that had once been Eustatius' home. While he stood observing the darkening scene, somebody came up. Clem, seeing him but dimly, would have let him pass silently, had not the pedestrian, who was Charlie, recognized the young man and spoken to him. "'Charlie, I have not seen you for a length of time,' said Yobright. "'Do you often walk this way?' "'No.' the lad replied. "'I don't often come outside the bank.' "'You are not of the Maypole?' "'No,' said Charlie, in the same listless tone. "'I don't care for that sort of thing now.' "'You rather liked Miss Eustacia, didn't you?' Yobright gently asked. Eustacia had frequently told him of Charlie's romantic attachment. "'Yes, very much. Ah, I wish—' "'Yes?' "'I wish, Mr. Yobright, you could give me something to keep that once belonged to her, if you don't mind.' "'I shall be very happy to.' It will give me great pleasure, Charlie. Let me think what I have of hers that you would like. But come with me to the house, and I'll see." They walked towards Bloom's End together. When they reached the front it was dark, and the shutters were closed, so that nothing of the interior could be seen. "'Come round this way,' said Clem. "'My entrance is at the back for the present.' The two went round and ascended the crooked stair in darkness till Clem's sitting-room on the upper floor was reached, where he lit a candle. Charlie entering gently behind. Yobright searched his desk, and taking out a sheet of tissue paper, unfolded from it two or three undulating locks of raven hair, which fell over the paper like black streams. From these he selected one, wrapped it up, and gave it to the lad, whose eyes had filled with tears. He kissed the packet, put it in his pocket, and said in a voice of emotion, "'Oh, Mr. Clem, how good you are to me!' I will go a little way with you," said Clem, and amid the noise of merriment from below they descended. Their path to the front led them close to a little side window, whence the rays of candles streamed across the shrubs. The window, being screened from general observation by the bushes, had been left unblinded, so that a person in this private nook could see all that was going on within the room which contained the wedding guests except in so far as vision was hindered by the green antiquity of the panes. "'Charlie, what are they doing?' said Clem. "'My sight is weaker again to-night, and the glass of this window is not good.' Charlie wiped his own eyes, which were rather blurred with moisture, and stepped closer to the casement. "'Mr. Glenn is asking Christine Castle to sing,' he replied. "'And Christian is moving about in his chair as if he were frightened at the question, and his father has struck up a stave instead of him.' "'Yes, I can hear the old man's voice,' said Clem. "'So there is to be no dancing, I suppose. And is Thomason in the room? I see something moving in front of the candles that resembles her shape, I think.' "'Yes, she do seem happy. She is red in the face and laughing at something Fairway has said to her. Oh, my!' "'What noise was that?' said Clem. "'Mr. Venn is so tall he knocked his head against the beam, hinging a skit, as he passed under Mrs. Venn, 
to return up quite frightened, and she's put her hand on his head to feel if there's a lump, and now they all be laughing again, as if nothing had happened. Do any of them seem to care about my not being there? Clem asked. No, not in a bit. Now they're all holding up their glasses and drinking to somebody's elf. I wonder if it's mine. No, tis Mr. and Mrs. Venn's, since he's making a hearty sort of speech. There. Now Mrs. Venn has got up and is going away to put on her things, I think. Well, they haven't concerned themselves about me, and it's quite right they should not. It is all as it should be, and Thomason at least is happy. We will not stay any longer now, as they will soon be coming out to go home. He accompanied the lad into the heath on his way home, and returning alone to the house a quarter of an hour later, found Venn and Thomason ready to start, all the guests having departed in his absence. The wedded pair took their seats in the four-wheeled dog-cart which Venn's head-milker and handyman had driven from Stickleford to fetch them in. Little Eustacia and the nurse were packed securely upon the open flat behind, and the milker, on an ancient overstepping pony, whose shoes clashed like cymbals at every tread, rode in the rear, in the manner of a body-servant of the last century. "'Now we leave you in absolute possession of your own house again,' said Thomason, as she bent down to wish her cousin good-night. "'It will be rather lonely for you, Clem, after the hubbub we have been making.' "'Oh, that's no inconvenience,' said Clem, smiling rather sadly. And then the party drove off and vanished in the nightshades, and Yobright entered the house. The ticking of the clock was the only sound that greeted him, for not a soul remained. Christian, who acted as cook, valet, and gardener to Clem, sleeping at his father's house. Yobright sat down in one of the vacant chairs and remained in thought a long time. His mother's old chair was opposite. It had been sat in that evening by those who had scarcely remembered that it ever was hers. But to Clem she was always a presence there, now as always. Whatever she was in other people's memories, in his she was the sublime saint whose radiance even his tenderness for Eustacia could not obscure. But his heart was heavy. That mother had not crowned him in the day of his espousals and in the day of the gladness of his heart and events had borne out the accuracy of her judgment, and proved the devotedness of her care. He should have heeded her for Eustacia's sake even more than for his own. It was all my fault, he whispered. Oh, my mother, my mother, would to God that I could live my life again, and endure for you what you endured for me. On the Sunday after this wedding an unusual sight was to be seen on Rainbarrow. From a distance there simply appeared to be a motionless figure standing on the top of the tumulus, just as Eustacia had stood on that lonely summit some two years and a half before. But now it was fine warm weather, with only a summer breeze blowing, and early afternoon instead of dull twilight. Those who ascended to the immediate neighborhood of the barrow perceived that the erect form in the center, piercing the sky, was not really alone. Round him, upon the slopes of the barrow, a number of heathmen and women were reclining or sitting at their ease. They listened to the words of the man in their midst, who was preaching, while they abstractedly pulled heather, stripped ferns, or tossed pebbles down the slope. This was the first of a series of moral lectures or sermons on the mount, which were to be delivered from the same place every Sunday afternoon as long as the fine weather lasted. The commanding elevation of Rainbarrow had been chosen for two reasons. 
first that it occupied a central position among the remote cottages around secondly that the preacher thereon could be seen from all adjacent points as soon as he arrived at his post the view of him being thus a convenient signal to those stragglers who wished to draw near the speaker was bareheaded and the breeze at each waft gently lifted and lowered his hair somewhat too thin for a man of his years these still numbering less than thirty-three he wore a shade over his eyes and his face was pensive and lined but though these bodily features were marked with decay there was no defect in the tones of his voice which was rich musical and stirring he stated that his discourses to people were to be sometimes secular and sometimes religious but never dogmatic and that his texts would be taken from all kinds of books this afternoon the words were as follows and the king rose up to meet her and bowed himself unto her and sat down on his throne and caused a seat to be set for the king's mother and she sat on his right hand then she said i desire one small petition of thee i pray thee say me not nay and the king said unto her ask on mother for i will not say thee nay Yobright had, in fact, found his vocation in the career of an itinerant open-air preacher and lecturer on morally unimpeachable subjects, and from this day he laboured incessantly in that office, speaking not only in simple language on Rainbarrow and in the Hamlet's Round, but in a more cultivated strain elsewhere, from the steps and porticoes of town halls, from market-crosses, from conduits, on esplanades and on wharves, from the parapets of bridges, in barns and outhouses, and all other such places in the neighbouring Wessex towns and villages. He left alone creeds and systems of philosophy, finding enough and more than enough to occupy his tongue in the opinions and actions common to all good men. Some believed him, and some believed not. Some said that his words were commonplace, others complained of his want of theological doctrine while others again remarked that it was well enough for a man to take to preaching who could not see to do anything else but everywhere he was kindly received for the story of his life had become generally known end of book six chapter four end of book six end of the return of the native by thomas hardy